Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Consider a list of the most disruptive and revolutionary moments in European history. The Reformation is sometimes missed or even dismissed as a purely social or spiritual event. To do so would show a gross misunderstanding of the enormous effect this transition had not only on the lives of ordinary people throughout Europe, but also in shaping the geopolitical course of the 16th and 17th centuries. Today, we'll talk about what exactly the Reformation was and why some seemingly small disagreements turned into a crisis of identity. Let's begin. Okay, we're here on HI101 with Gary Hallman. Hello. How's it going, Gary? It's going good. It's going good. Really happy to have you on the show. Yeah, I'm super excited to talk about this. Yeah, we're talking about uh, the Reformation today and kind of all the terrible, terrible effects that it had on Europe. So many terrible things. And uh, and it was you that chose this topic, which is something I always try to do, is, is get the, the guests to pick something they're excited about. And you're really excited. I, I am excited only because, like, my background is Mennonite. Right. And so, I mean, it's, it's something in that community that, like, they really push hard for people to kind of, like, dig down to the roots because... Sure. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's just something that... All of those things you'd think about, about like Mennonite and Amish people, like Mm -hmm. um, pacifism, you know, kind of staying out of government and things like that was all founded off of the experience of, you know, the Reformation and their, their kind of trials after that. But outside of that, you know, they, they teach us like, yeah, a lot of, a lot of bad stuff happened. Like a lot of people were killed. And those are interesting groups because they were like, even, even in a time of turmoil and, and upheaval like even the people who were who were in active revolt against the the established uh, order people like the Amish or the Mennonites were were considered extreme even by them they were like whoa 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 we want to we want to turn everything on its head but let's not get out of control here oh yeah totally but i mean like it's it's interesting to to see that in that period of time i know a lot about what happened to a very specific group of people and have no context as to like why these things were happening they're just like don't ever forget yeah people died it's like yeah but why but why yeah well that's gonna come in really handy as we get in a little bit further but we'll try to put that in some context for you the reformation it's a it's a funny thing we were talking a little bit before we started uh recording that i feel like a lot of people overlook it for one of two reasons either they're really interested in it because you know it it affects them personally through their faith and in that case they're sort of looking at one slice kind of like what you're talking about with uh with your family background 
but they kind of ignore all the other stuff that's going on because you know they're, they're trying to focus on on what's most relevant or most meaningful to them which kind of precludes the entire context of the whole thing oh yeah there's there's so much going on in this period of time absolutely or people are kind of shying away from it because they see it as an episode in religious history where that's sort of like a niche thing that isn't necessarily it it informs certain actions that are going on at this point in time but understanding what the actual changes are going on in the in the christian faith at that point in time understanding those specifics uh, isn't always considered that necessary and that's not necessarily true when you're going through for like your formal education like it's not like it's it's not like they completely ignore the reformation they pretend like it didn't happen there are full courses on all this stuff but i i feel like in sort of popular conception of, of European history, you know, and then the Reformation happened, let's move on kind of thing. Yeah, and it's it's really interesting because even even in that context as well, people do like to gloss over it, but it's so weird that that's the case because, like, we're talking about, this is the period where your religion, religious sex, like, broke apart mm-hmm. for major theological reasons. Yep. You know, like it's it's not small differences in like, oh, well, you know, we like to worship on this day where you guys like to do it on Saturdays or yeah. something like that. It's no like serious, um, you know, schisms in, you know, how people interact as organizational structures yeah. and who's accountable to whom. And, mm-hmm. you know, where does God fit into all of this? Like yeah. Yeah, really, absolutely. really interesting stuff. Uh, and and actually, kind of the flip side of that is that one of my favorite things about this is that, is how small some of the some of the rifts end up seeming, kind of in retrospect to us. Oh man, because still were, see that today, like it's, right. But they were life and death for these people. Yeah, I mean, one of the things we should probably talk about is is sort of um, leading up to the Reformation, like what exactly is going on religiously with Europe um, at that point in time, because it's it's. I've talked about this on the show before, but it can be really hard to conceive of like how important religious religion was to people's day-to-day life at this point in time. And I'm not trying to disparage anyone alive at their, their faith or their level of faith or anything like that. But man, these guys took it so seriously that I, you know, I would imagine you'd be hard pressed to find anyone who's quite as devout as even like the average person at this point in time. Because it had it had such an effect on every single portion of their life, and it was a life and death matter for them. Yeah, and it's especially in Europe too, because I think a lot of people tend to forget that, you know, European winters are super cold, and there's not a whole lot to do if you're typically, you know, in farming communities. Mm-hmm. Like, what else do you do in the winter with your friends except talk about the Bible and yep. you know study it intensely, like? When you look at some of the things that these guys are writing at the time, like they're talking about like full page, like crazy essays mm-hmm. on like two verses of the Bible. And, you know, people felt so vehemently about it. People got killed. It was I, I mean, th- that that idea alone, like killing someone over a disagreement of uh, an interpretation of a Bible verse, which is somewhat reductive but still like essentially true like, who, who would do that now no one yeah it kind of very, makes me very, like a few people you happy for humanity it's like oh yeah and, we're kind well, of learning a little bit but. anyone that would do that today would be considered mentally ill oh yeah for sure 
Absolutely. And it's it's just a complete shift. And, and there's been a complete shift in society since then about the way that people relate to their faith and the way that faith uh, organizations relate to society at large, that trying to compare the two is is essentially impossible. Yeah. So Europe before the 11th century is basically you're Christian. And yes, there were outside groups there, uh, most notably the Jews after they were, well, the diaspora when they, they spread throughout Europe, uh, when they were scattered from the Palestinian area. But for the most part, the vast majority of people were Christian. Then you get to 1054, when you have what's known as the Great Schism, when the uh, Orthodox Christian Church split from the Roman Catholic Church over some of these ideas that I was talking about that seem a little bit silly at this point in time, where, number one, how, uh, you know, whether or not it was okay to have images of religious figures in churches. Uh, number two, something that I've talked about before called filioque, which is a phrase that is in, uh, inserted into the creed when you're, when you're saying it which has implications on the nature of the relationship between the spirit and the other two aspects of the Christian God. So, yeah, whether, whether you say that the Holy Spirit descends from the Father in the Eastern Catholic Church or the Father and the Son in the Western Roman Catholic Church was enough for the popes to excommunicate each other and cause this giant rift in Christianity. I had no idea that there was even a difference in the saying. That is amazing. Yeah, it was called filioque, which is the Latin for for the and the sun section of that sentence. And it has these vast implications on the the permanence of God and the the, the uh, infinite nature of God, whether Jesus has always existed or came into existence at the point of time when uh, he was conceived, whether the Holy Spirit has always existed or came into existence when, when it was uh, sent down at Pentecost. All of these things are just like, there's no, there's no clear one answer in the Bible. And anything else that you can say about it extends from something called tradition. And tradition is really important in the Catholic Church. There is this idea that there's the Bible that you work from and the Bible is everything. But there's also thousands of years of people um, experiencing God in their day-to-day -day lives, studying God, uh, trying to better understand God, and, and revelations from God that teach them about the nature of God, about the nature of religion, and um, how best to achieve salvation. And the argument for tradition is, listen, we've been trying this out for a really long time and we've got a better idea of how things work than just what's in the Bible. So, you know, tradition is a good thing. It helps us learn how, how to be better Christians, how to be closer to God. The problem with tradition is that you can have more than one tradition and you can have disagreements about what traditions mean. You can also have disagreements about what uh, the Bible itself means, but that's that's a slightly different issue. The, the the tradition problem stems from a societal one, right? So, really, what you're looking at with the the extent of the Catholic Church is the old Roman Empire, right? Before Christianity, it was a it was a Roman religion uh, religious post, the, the pontiff. Okay. In fact, uh, Julius Caesar was lined up to be pontiff at one point. Huh. Yeah, um, if he may even have been pontiff for a short period of time before he stepped down. It was kind of like a, a ceremonial role that they kind of parked you in. And it was really prestigious, but like you wouldn't necessarily get any further. And I believe they tried to kind of sideline him in that position. So so like a, like a governor general kind of thing. Yeah, kind of, except you're there for life. Yeah. Well, that's that seems interesting because when you when you talk about 
you know, this tradition, Mm -hmm. it seems like a lot of the people that we're going to talk about, you know, they are these people who radically tradition. Absolutely. And that's going to be a huge theme. Yeah. And and when you think of like you're you're talking about how much importance people put in tradition, Mm -hmm. you know, it's it seems crazy to me that there was a movement all the way back then where people were just like, you know what, like tradition is kind of screwed things up. We need to take things literally and just Mm -hmm. look at this objectively and like, what does it say? And apply that only. Sure. Like blows my mind. Cause even today, like, you know, people struggle with, you know, all that kind of stuff too. And is it, is it religiously based or is it culturally based and where do you draw the line? So because it's a very blurry line because you can't really remove religion from culture completely yeah you, you, you know you can never quite get there and we've we've tried through modern society to at least remove it from political life as much as we can I, I mean it's it's at least considered an ideal or a goal which was not at all the case as far back as we're talking here mm-hmm. but from culture i mean because culture is is such a poorly defined thing and so a society that well it's not it's not even that it's poorly defined it's that it's it's all encompassing so you know religion is by default, part of society, part of culture. And as uh, the world becomes more diverse and more globalized, you know, you're having more and more different types of culture and different overlaps of culture and people identify with different types of groups. When we're talking here during, you know, when the Great Schism happens, there isn't that overlap because if you're European, you're Christian. And if you're Christian, you're probably European. Uh, you know, and yeah, there's going to be a few outliers, but for the most part, that is that is the cultural identity, and it is again the 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 remains of the old Roman Empire. And the first line that you see, the Great Schism, is the line between um, the Eastern and Western Roman Empire. It's it's exactly what Constantine did when he split split the empire in two, moved the capital to Constantinople, and that becomes the heart of the new Eastern Orthodox Church, right? And it becomes more Greek based in terms mm-hmm. of its culture rather than Latin, which is exactly what happened to the Eastern Roman Empire when it turned into the Byzantine Empire. You're seeing a perfect mirroring of what happened to the old Roman Empire a lot later on. But, you know, the the, the Pope is just the new emperor and it's it's there's a second emperor over in Constantinople now. It's just it's a complete, you know, mirror image of it. You've got this uh, this this cultural diversification. Same thing. You see Western Europe go more latin influenced and and german influenced which Mm -hmm. is also true of the roman empire french spanish all of these languages you know italian these are all latin languages whereas you're seeing slavic and uh and greek languages becoming more important in uh both in the byzantine empire uh and in the eastern orthodox church so it's you know when when you kind of look at it in those terms and in in the the church kind of holding the old institutions of Rome together longer, but not forever. It, it kind of makes a lot of sense the way that it split, you know, or how it split the way that it did. Oh, um, sure. Like when you're, when you're talking about political forces splitting, well, obviously that must affect the church somehow because the church is so involved as a political force. Mm-hmm, absolutely. There was always talk of kind of rejoining two halves of the church Basically, until the Crusades, where the where the the French and German Crusaders decided to take a detour and sack Constantinople, that pretty much ended their chances. Hmm. Yeah, they had they had 
excommunicated each other a whole bunch of times and you know tried reconciling but you get to a point where there's too many cultural and theological differences for reconciliation to be a viable option the idea of what catholicism was or what christianity at this point was also a little bit less well defined outside of like the vatican itself because the way that christianity in general spreads throughout europe is they kind of make a few concessions theologically speaking in order to be uh more widely popular so you'll see a lot of things change when they're trying to move into france and into germany or what would become or what would become those, those like countries. for holidays and stuff like that holidays or? are a big one a lot of christian holidays are based on old pagan holidays gotcha you also get uh, incorporation of uh local pagan deities into the college of saints okay. so that that was a very frequent thing that happened was was you would take whichever little you know forest god or whatever happened to be popular in a region and and take them and transform them into a saint and give them a backstory about their their piety and their their devotion to the christian god and you know if they had certain you know say that 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 uh forest grove had healing properties ostensibly or or, or they'd be like allegedly. the patron saint of whatever exactly they'd become a patron saint of that or like the miracles because it, it, to become a saint you have to have performed yeah. mir- miracles they would say okay well the miracles that, that uh revealed to us that they were a saint involved healing the sick or if it's a protection you know they're you know it, it, they were uh you know someone prayed to this uh the saint before battle and were, were protected during battle and and they, they take the they take these ideas of of um the religiously important people and they they, they flip them and they, they turn them into christian ideas but in doing so you know it strays a little bit from the christianity that maybe the second century christians would have uh recognized or known because we're starting to see that cultural influence again exactly so what you end up getting is by by the middle ages you get a lot of stuff that is kind of christian or people who would call themselves Christian are practicing, but aren't necessarily dogmatically sound. And it wasn't really a problem for anybody. Like, you know, they would be uh, calling themselves Christian, but still going to that forest grove and praying directly to that saint, um, asking them for intercession, which is kind of breaking one of the 10 big ones. Yeah. You know what I mean? But everyone did it in the town and it was considered fine. And the local priest came in and, you know, when he first got there was maybe a little bit outraged or maybe a little bit shocked, but uh, decided that everyone was more or less probably good and learned to incorporate it into their own lives and basically let all of that stuff slide. Until you get to the Great Schism and people start getting a little bit worried about unity within the church, right? And you start getting movements like uh, the Cathars. The Cathars were a, a group that were that considered themselves Christian, but they were dualists. Um, dualism is an interesting uh, philosophy. It comes from it's it's been around for for centuries. It, it started back in uh, well, I mean the the roots are unknown. It's a mystery religion. So it's it started back in in Babylon. It started even before Judaism was really well established. But dualism is this idea that there are two worlds, the physical world and the spiritual world, and everything about the physical world is inherently evil and everything spiritual is inherently good. And while we're here on earth, trapped in physical bodies, we can't help but be evil. Like the nature of the physical oh, world is that, evil. That seems like a recipe for disaster. But the soul within <laughs> you is is good. 
And so you get weird stuff with duelists. Like the, there's some really, it takes you down some really odd logical. So were paths. they like hedonistic? there have been some uh, duelist cults that have been hedonist. There have also been some that are completely um, uh, that abstain completely because they believe that bringing any more people into the physical world is the most evil act that could possibly be committed <laughs> because you're trapping a, a, a divine soul into a, a, a profane perfectly body. logical those ones don't last long for obvious reasons yeah. <laughs> if people don't leave they kind of die out yeah the cathars were pretty middle of the road they weren't i mean as much as we know about them anyways they were active between or during the 12th and 13th centuries so the 1100s 1200s and they mostly just seemed interested in sort of looking for deeper meanings within the Gospels because they were also Gnostics. Gnostic religions are generally tend towards dualism. And Gnostic is just this idea of knowing a divine mystery. That's what Gnostic means. They were mostly pretty harmless. They tended to be pacifists. But the church obviously saw this as a really dangerous idea because at the heart of the idea of dualism is that for the spiritual realm to be purely good, then God has to be purely good, which means that God can't have created the physical world, which means that the physical world must be a trap designed either by the adversary, Satan, or by a second God who is evil and in, in uh, contest with the good God. So it's like logically inconsistent well, with monotheism is what it is. It's saying that there is another God, or uh, if not that, then that God is not all powerful. Both of those are not, they, they don't fly. They don't fly for pretty obvious reasons. People's understanding of theological issues at this point in time are vastly dependent on the quality of their education. And the spread of information is really slow. I mean, if anyone owned any book at all, it would be a handwritten copy of the Bible. So I mean, the church has a lockdown on not only education, because most schools were church run, unless you wanted to pay a lot of money, like only the, the incredibly wealthy were able to afford a non-religious school. So at this point in, in time, like the vast, like, would you say the vast majority of people are still like illiterate? Absolutely. Okay. And they're going to mass and they're hearing mass in Latin. Which and they then probably which they, don't understand. Most likely. And uh, then they get a sermon often in the vernacular where the priest tells them what the what the what the uh, what the bible verse was usually an abstract not the specifics tells them what it means for them and what it means for their their spiritual life Aren't parables great parables are wonderful <laughs> um and and that was that was their religious experience was basically being told what to or how to take the thing that they were talking about that week they didn't have books because the books were handwritten by monks and that made them incredibly expensive just in sheer man hours. And the, the church was the only organization that had enough resources to devote to creating these manuscripts. I mean, again, if you're incredibly wealthy, there are other books, obviously, but in general, that's where the, the majority of your resources lie. And so what that means is that when something comes up like the Cathars, the church deems them dangerous. And so the only way you can really get people to find them as dangerous as, uh, as you believe them to be is to tell these people 
exactly what is dangerous about them. And the church had a pretty bad habit at this point in time of, uh, shall we say, embellishing certain aspects of the theology and shall we say making up out of whole cloth certain aspects and so i i actually did a, a an episode on on the witch hunts um with yumiko uh, months and months back it's a it's a pretty good episode we kind of focus a lot more on like the heretics um of, yeah. of this era and of, of people's response to it but the Basically, what ends up happening is the church goes, okay, what's the most like unthinkable things that we can think of? We're going to say that these guys <laughs> do it. So it's it's all just like, yeah, they, I, it's it's all just like, yeah, there's a statue of a guy and he has a cat's head and then they lick its butt. And it's like, okay, well, I get, and like you, you read it now and it's kind of like, okay. Yeah, but that's, if you're like, you know, funny, but like mid-century peasant, you're like, oh man, this that's weird stuff. Like this. Up. These are messed up dudes. And then when the church goes, we're going to wipe, we're going to raise an army and we're going to go and wipe them out. You go, ah, okay, I'm, I'm okay with that. These guys are, you know, they're, they're trying to dehumanize them as much yeah. as possible to demonize the, uh, the, um, their beliefs. And it's really effective at this point in time. Yeah, it like is because Ulrich might be your neighbor, but he's a cat butt licker. But you probably don't know they these did. guys because they tended to remove themselves. They tended to live in communities with like-minded people. And you probably didn't know any Cathars. So, like, yeah, they went and they wiped them all out. But they went, okay, well, this is a pretty good formula for, like, what people are going to find revolting. We're going to stick with this. It's working pretty good. So everyone else that comes up after this point, they try and pin these really weird... Um, occult sort of practices on and say like yeah these guys do it too that's how you know they're satanists and everyone's like oh yeah we should get rid of these guys too you know you get guys like the the waldensians who were followers of uh peter waldo this is this is like 1140 some of his main beliefs he wasn't a dualist but he rejected uh literal transubstantiation transubstantiation is this idea that during the celebration of the eucharist the bread and wine literally become the body and blood of christ and there are you know there's a specific bible verse in there where you know jesus said this is my body this is my blood and they go well like he said it right there that's what it means and other people you know peter waldo i think he meant it like symbolically but that wasn't the traditional uh understanding of that verse that wasn't the mainstream understanding and so it was rejected by the, the church so here's the thing though it's like it seems harmless enough what exactly within this theology is so dangerous is it just kind of like well if you question one part of it then it's open to question and that's what's so dangerous absolutely okay i mean You've, you've just had the Great Schism. This is the first they've really... Re well, just. It's been a while. It's been a century at the point we're talking about right now. But as soon as you see the church split, all of a sudden it's no longer a united church. Yeah. And so when you have a united church, it's e a united church, it's easy to sort of tolerate some dissent or tolerate some variation. But when you're concerned that a movement is picking up steam, um, that is gaining popularity, and you're trying to maintain unity within the church you're seeing any variation as a potential threat not just to yourself because you're not concerned about your own um conviction right you know you're right if you're the catholic church at this point yeah you know you're of course right. you're not worried about that but what you're worried about is losing followers to these guys because if they become popular you're watching more and more of your flock stray 
Mm-hmm. So you're seeing this as the potential for losing losing souls. And this isn't the kind of thing that people come up with. This is the kind of thing that, that Satan comes up with. And again, this is one of those things where it's kind of hard to put yourself in that headspace. Yeah. That this is literally like a, a demonic conspiracy. Yeah. These you. guys are like drawing souls away like they must be evil. Yes. There's like no other explanation for it. Clearly, clearly only logical. Yeah. The the Waldensians were also the first producers of the, the first vernacular Bible. This was dangerous for a couple reasons. Number one, the the church didn't really believe that the general population was capable of properly interpreting the Bible. They felt that they were not well enough um, uh, studied to, uh, to interpret it. And what's more, they saw a lineage from the disciples of Christ to the priesthood. They saw that order as the ones that have been gifted with um the blessings of the holy spirit from pentecost like if if you if you remember that story it's about the the tongues of fire coming down on the uh on the uh the disciples they're given the ability to speak in every language of the world they're given the ability to uh interpret the scriptures uh through divine uh, inspiration and they saw that as the establishment of the christian priesthood not as a gift to all christian followers and therefore they saw the, the priests as sort of custodians of the faith that were there in order to help everyone who had not been divinely inspired Mm -hmm. to properly follow those teachings. They're, they're, they're part of the club. If you let everybody a part of the club, they are part of the club, but they saw it as much as a burden um, Mm -hmm. as they did a, a a benefit. Right. So we're going to come back to this whole interpretation of, of the priesthood later, obviously, obviously, but we'll leave it there for now. The other thing that the Waldensians were into was sola scriptura, which is Latin for, it's pretty easy to figure out, it's scripture only. Their point was that we've got the Bible, it tells us everything we need to get into heaven. We're good. Like, we don't need tradition. We can, like, we don't need to do what the church says just because it says it. That's why we can put the, the Bible into vernacular. I mean, the, the tradition is saying that the priests, as, as keepers of this knowledge, are going to read it in Latin because that is the the language that the the word of God had been passed down in, and to yeah. translate it into vernacular risks uh, some perversion of that message. So you can see, like, I can totally understand then looking at that and thinking, okay, well, the first couple of things you mentioned, like, ah, don't like that, don't like that. When you say that, it's like, whoa, like, we don't need the church. Period. Like. Like yeah. that is basically saying like, we don't need the structure of the church to interpret the word of God. That all of a sudden is like, you know, you've got people running around saying, you know, like that's, that's worth killing somebody over. Like that yeah. all of a sudden is like, look at these guys. They're saying that they don't even need us anymore. Yeah. Clearly they must be evil. Like you can, you can just imagine, like you said, it's, it's weird to put yourself in that headspace, but I can just imagine like a group of priests back then and their eyeballs like, you know, popping out of their head as they're hearing out of some of this stuff. Absolutely. And and well, and what's more is that it's often priests that are creating these these heresies, these these splinter groups. Right. Because they're so, you know, they're so learned that they kind of realize that, well, maybe not all of this tradition stuff is as rock solid as. Yeah, it's kind of ironic. And so that's seen as even more of a betrayal, because if, if, you know, if Farmer John down the road decides that he's going to create his own church, 
you know, all power to him. But the village priest who has, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of people who will listen to his every word and don't even really know well enough to challenge him on anything. If that priest goes and, and, and takes a, a hard left turn, then you're not just risking that one dude. So around this time, you're also getting like the whole medieval inquisition thing where people are being sent out from the Vatican to ensure, uh, you know, proper uh, following of the catechism, things like that, uh, proper recitation of the mass, making sure that there's no uh, pagan hangover uh, rituals or, or anything like that. And they really start cracking down on this stuff. Another one that I wanted to bring up was John Wycliffe, who lived in the 14th century. Now, he was English. He also advocated for a vernacular Bible. But he went a step further. He challenged the authority of the Pope on moral grounds. He believed that the church serves God, but it does not. But the church is not God. And that if the Pope or if the, the administration of the church uh, was failing on moral grounds then the church itself had lost the moral authority to lead religiously. Yeah, and I, I think around that time, this is something that is still preached today and is kind of like a point of pride in a lot of these, you know, groups groups that came out of this period is this idea that, look, the church is not God. The church serves God. Everybody's equal. Yeah. And I think that is that is so interesting because maybe, you know, we could argue that the first time in history somebody was really going around and saying this, like, you know, a lot of stuff got messed up in the world. Yeah. You know, but that was quickly changed over. Like, you know, Jesus, Jesus for a large point of, of his time, was preaching a message of equality. Sure. Um, but now we've got it on a more wide-scale effort that, you know, you got a lot of people saying, like, wait a second, like, there is nothing between us and the church like all yep. people should be equal right and what a radical concept like that must have just shook every part of society to its core absolutely yep sola scriptura was a, a big problem for the church because the church is part of the tradition the church effectively is tradition and if you say the tradition isn't as important or isn't important at all that kind of wipes out a lot of their moral authority to lead we need to talk briefly about something called an indulgence. Now, an indulgence is a really good example of a really innocent idea that got perverted and used in really terrible ways. So basically, when in really early Christianity, when you committed a sin, you had to do some sort of penance for it to make up for it. And often the penances were brutal. It would take you years to make up for certain sins. So through tradition, um, there was this idea that came forward of the fact that Christ had sacrificed himself for everyone, gave the world sort of a, almost like a budgetary surplus of grace. Mm -hmm. And that if you were truly sorry for your sins, you could draw on that and your penance could be a whole lot smaller than what the sin necessarily like prescribed. And that gave people a way around having to do like years and years and years of, of making up for something fairly small. No, I'm I'm not. I'll, I'll be upfront with this. Like I'm not Catholic, so I don't know the tradition that much. But um, was there was there not something about like 
you know, that had a lot to do with how much time you necessarily had to spend in purgatory. Yeah, we're going to get there. Okay. Absolutely, we're going to get there. So, right now we've got this 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 reservoir of grace that, that allows you to short, shorten your times, right? Okay. And this, this sort of, like, shortening of your sentence is an indulgence, right? So the, the priest decides you're sorry enough that, you know, you should be good with only this, this fraction of, of uh, penance that you have to do, and that's an indulgence. And that 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 small piece is that it like you, a that you one have time left. thing though? Is it no, not necessarily. But what you're doing with an indulgence is while you're still here on Earth, you're doing something. You're specifically doing uh, an act to make up for whatever you've done wrong. Okay. Um, but it's much much smaller because it's drawing on the grace uh, of God. So, you know, it would be that you know, like yeah, you you. You stole some grain from your neighbor, but you were starving, and now you feel really bad about it. You should. You should. It was a bad thing to do. But (laughs) the the priest is going like, okay, obviously this guy isn't like a hardened criminal. He feels really bad. I know him from around. He's a good guy other than this thing that he did. You know, if he goes and, you know, spends some time uh, working at the local monastery for, let's say, uh, three weekends this summer... Uh, helps working on their stuff rather than working his own land. God will make up for the rest of the, the 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 debt that's caused by this sin. Mm-hmm. There are three major ways that in in the Bible it was taught that you could show devotion to God like actively. There's prayer. There's fasting, which is which is uh, restricting things that you want, and mm-hmm. then there's almsgiving, money to the church to be given to the poor. And they realized that one of the ways you could give indulgences was to ask for a donation to the church. And this is where things start going bad. There Hmm. are increasingly priests who take almost entirely indulgences in cash form. There are priests who skim off of indulgences. It's important to remember that anyone that's involved in the church is still a human being. And just because they've been ordained doesn't mean that they don't do terrible things. Then you start getting into wider stuff where there were, pre- there were priests that would travel around doing only confessions and they would take only cash indulgences to forgive people's sins. That's these guys... It's kind of weird. It is kind of weird. I agree. But these guys started telling a lie. And the lie was this. At the, at the time, the idea was that when you died, if you were actually a terrible person and you died in mortal sin, so you had committed a, a mortal sin, not just a... Like there's, there's mortal sins, which are the real bad ones. And then there's venal sins, which are like, uh, okay, you shouldn't have done that, but we can forgive you for you, it. You lusted in your heart, and you shouldn't have, Bill. Exactly. Um, if you died and you were in mortal sin and you had not confessed it, you would be going to hell. Mm-hmm. If you died and you still had venal sins on your soul, but you were generally a good person, you went to this place called Purgatory, where you basically spent time burning away your sins. It was a terrible place to be. But after you spent a time in purgatory that is uh, relative to the amount of sin that you have uh, left on your soul, then you can go to heaven. These people traveling around started telling people that you could give indulgences on behalf of people that are in purgatory to shorten the amount of time that they spent in purgatory. See, part part of me thinks it's like, that's so terrible, but so smart. This was not the official position of the church. Not even close. But again, you only have so much control over what 
your priests are doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it became so widespread that a lot of people believed it as dogma, even though it wasn't actual true, like it wasn't in the catechism. John Wycliffe argued that because of this, or this widespread abuse of indulgences, that the church had lost this moral authority to uh, govern religiously. That there were enough people within the hierarchy of the church that as an organization, they couldn't be considered a moral authority. Okay, I can see kind of where he's coming from. The church hated this guy so much that 50 years after his death, they dug up his body and burned it as a heretic. Yep, can't have those after-death thoughts reaching out to the peoples. So all of these movements are getting, you know, suppressed, but these are definitely proto-Reformation ideas, absolutely pro-Reformation ideas. Uh, we'll quickly hit on one more guy who was Jan Hus, who was alive in, you know, the late 14th, early 15th centuries. And his biggest thing was that he was vehemently against the Crusades. He believed the killing in the name of God was... Not what God would want, for starters. Number one, you know, yeah, that like whole, you can, you can absolutely thing. see all of these things and and see why it was kind of like almost destined to come to a butting of heads of these major ideas. Because well, when you when you've got these guys who can read the Bible mm-hmm. and you know it literally says, "Thou shalt not kill," eventually there's going to be enough people who are like, "Yeah, but you know." The church is saying one thing that this is okay, but it says right here, right here, yep. literally, shouldn't kill people. Yep. And and the, the issue, too, is that the, the medieval church was incredibly corrupt. You know, you had a lot of, you had a lot of uh, popes where their nephew ended up being pope after them. Oh, yeah. And, and I, I know, like, uh, there's lots of stories about wealthy people who would go to uh, priests to figure out what the indulgence would be before they had even committed the sin. Which also was technically against the catechism, but if you were like a strictly indulgence-giving priest, or taking priest, I should say, uh, you would probably be happy to take their money. Oh, yeah, sure. Like, if there's, if there's like, you know, the wealthy wealthiest guy in town says, like, hey, like, this dude who lives beside me, like, I want to kill him and take his land. Mm-hmm. How much is that going to cost me? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, here you go. Ting, ting, yep. ting, ting, ting. That covers me. We're good. Off I go. It's it's crazy. And and yeah, like the, the you had the other thing about the nature of the medieval church is that they have a lot of land and a lot of like secular power. Mm-hmm. They have standing armies that are devoted to the Pope. They're not just a religious authority at this point. And there are a lot of places where that secular authority and religious authority uh, come into conflict and there are a lot of times where the the ruling pope at the time chose the more beneficial course for his secular authority yeah and and i i think it's worth noting that like it's it's easy to look back and and uh you know judge people throughout history for oh, the terrible course. things they they do of but course. you know i would say it's more just you know you can point to that to say you know here's Here's why these these proto Marxist proto or proto Anabaptist theologies kind of sprung out of the ground because you know you can only have that much corruption before you know there's going to be dissent and you know a lot of people just looked at it on biblical terms. So, mm-hmm. yep. So I mean it's obviously coming up uh, apart at the seams here, and then 
you have this guy named Gutenberg who comes along and in 1440 or so invents this thing called the printing press with movable type. And he just ruined everything. Absolutely everything. Thanks, Gutenberg. Thanks, Gutenberg. Uh, I think we should probably pause with Gutenberg inventing movable type. Take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll kind of dive into what that did for literacy and finally get, get around to the big guy, Martin Luther, and talk a little bit about him. All right. All right, we're back on HI101 here with Gary Hallman. Hello and, again. I've uh, been getting all ecclesiastical over here. Oh, yeah. Man, I hope people are enjoying this. <laughs> I, I know. It's, you know, it, it's one of those things where it's just, it's so important to how things... Sh- you know shook out for modern history like mm-hmm. it's just so overlooked like it's really easy to point to big sexy things throughout history and like people look at religious wars and they're just like you don't so think the reformation un- is big and sexy do you, do you, come on i i do think it is <laughs> and i think it gets a bad rap as like really boring but absolutely you know not. this is the stuff that is you know forming the grounds for you know other thinkers throughout history yeah, you ha- we, we're, we're going big places with this. We've been focusing on some really nitpicky details, but it's important. It's the little, it, it's the kindling that starts this brush fire in Europe and, and just, uh, it changes so much, so much. Okay, so, so you know, we've, we've set the stage now. Gutenberg invents movable press, and yeah. it goes from being able to produce, say, yeah, a couple pages a day in a monastery to as many as 6,500 pages a day, which is a massive increase in uh, the production of, of printed material. Yeah, he's like the Al Gore of his time. Basically. You know, inventing, yeah, inventing, the inventing things that change everything. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it, it drives down the cost of, of books. And the first thing that Gutenberg prints is, is the Bible, right? Makes sense. As a first shot in the 15th century, sure, why not? Big demand. Big demand. Still the best-selling book of all time. Absolutely, it is. So all of a sudden, instead of only the most elite wealthy people being able to afford a copy of the Bible, all of a sudden, like, middling wealthy people can afford Bibles, too. And it starts kind of trickling down. More and more people are able to afford this. And what's more, every once in a while you see somebody try to quantify Gutenberg Bible would have cost to buy at that point in time. And it just doesn't really make sense because you can't put it in terms of dollars necessarily. Yeah. But to buy a book that, let's say for argument's sake, costs more than it would cost us to buy a car. If there was one book that anyone was going to buy that would that cost that much... It would be the Bible. They would want a Bible in the home because it was that central to their lives. But they couldn't read it. It was in Latin. Unless they spoke Latin, I guess. And that was a problem. Mm-hmm. Luther, yeah, let's let's stick with Luther. We'll come back to Gutenberg and talk about why the printed word is, yeah, is no, so this, central to this. This is a Luther, guy but... that like everybody knows the name. Everybody knows a lot of people know his name. They should. They yeah, really you know, he's know a famous Luther dude throughout is. history. Like, yeah, Martin Luther and the Reformation. Sure. That's when the history books stop. So tell me, tell me more about this dude. Like, 
I I've I know about the theses on the door. I've yeah. been to it before. Like I've have you seen... been to that church? Yeah, I've I got seen... bad news. I've uh, I learned know. that there's a very good chance that he never actually posted the theses on the door. I heard that, but it sounds way cooler, so I choose to believe. <laughs> there is also the fact that at that point in time, as a priest and as a professor, which Luther was both, it was very common to post your doctoral dissertation in the most public place in town, which was usually the door of the church. Mm-hmm. So people get this idea of this like angry monk that's like, that's it, I've had it with the Catholic Church. Like grabbing some scraps of paper, scribbling out all of his problems with it, grabbing a hammer and just like bang, 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 nailing it into the door and being like, that's, and I'm, and I'm done. And now I've got my own church. That's not what happened here at all. That's not even close to what happened here. That was, let's back up a little bit. Martin Luther is this, uh, this German priest. He was born in Saxony. Um, he was also, as I said, he was a professor. So he was, he was incredibly intelligent. He was very well educated for the like, especially for the time. Uh, very dynamic speaker. Apparently, just incredibly charismatic. Like impossibly. I'm sure charismatic. you'd have to be, right? I think so. I think so. And just smart as a whip. Just incredibly intelligent. Had no problem telling people what he thought. He was incredibly opinionated. He was very loud. Um, I, I don't know. I, I love. I, I kind of like reading about him as as a person as much as about his ideas because as, as fascinating as his ideas are he must have been like a really interesting guy like there are there are so many hymns that he wrote that are still used in lutheran churches today in in, in ter- churches of all denominations oh yeah like people people forget just just how long certain denominations have been around and how long their memories are like sure so yeah tradition's important in a lot of these places which is very ironic with what we're going isn't for it here. though isn't it so ironic so luther was born in 1483 but really what we're going to talk about is the early 16th century so what's going on in 16th century we've got a united france we've got uh, a holy roman empire that's under a habsburg emperor and the holy roman empire consists of over 200 little states that some of them are led by a prince some of them are led by a bishop Dukes. who is also a prince Sometimes everybody's getting crazy they're, yeah they're they're these tiny little states that they're you know a number of them would be smaller than the smallest states that we have now because in france they gave their land to the oldest son and the second son would go and have an illustrious military career and uh, the third son, maybe they'd set him up as a merchant or something like that. And fourth through however many, probably went to the church. In Germany, they split it up through or uh, between various sons. And they kept splitting things smaller and smaller. And it divided into more and more principalities, which are all technically part of the Holy Roman Emperor or Empire. But functionally, politically, aren't really that well united. Mm-hmm. They're mainly united culturally because they're all ethnically German, more or less. And sort of because of this vague threat of, of um, military intercession by the Holy Roman Emperor, if they step out of line with, you know, sort of the, the marching orders of the Holy Roman Empire. It was a pretty ad hoc, very loose sort of arrangement. You've also got 
uh, and Italy, which is essentially all city-states except for the Vatican states, which are a little bit bigger, but still kind of spread across. You have, you know, in the uh, in the east, you've got, well, when we're talking, we've got the Ottoman Empire now. Yeah. The Byzantine Empire has fallen. The Ottomans have taken over the remnants of that empire. So you have sort of this vague threat on your eastern border. Trade with China has been cut off. Um, to the north, you've got sort of these remnants of what were once Mongol uh, steppe nomads that make things a little bit different, uh, uh, dangerous up towards the Ural Mountains. Um, you've got these these Slavic people that would uh, you know that are kind of turning into what's going to be Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's a kind of a weird time to be in Europe. It's a little bit fractured, but everyone is very much united under the leadership of the church. But the church is kind of losing its grip a little bit. It's got these these uh, these heretics that are popping up. You've got the uh, uh, inquisitions that are going on to make sure that dogma is being adhered to. Yeah, it's it's an odd time. And so one of the biggest problems that you have is the Holy Roman Empire itself. Because it's so fractured, there's a lot of very independent, very kind of overly loud for their actual power or size type rulers that are trying to throw their weight around, except that the Holy Roman Empire or Emperor has been ordained by God and is supported by the Pope. Mm-hmm. And so you can't really go against him that much. But if they had a way that they could go against him, they probably would. Luther is this priest that he is a catholic priest he was a catholic priest that's a thing that people seem to forget for some reason i don't know why oh yeah it didn't spawn out of nowhere yeah he's sometimes treated that way yeah i don't know well i i do know why it's for the same reason that you know people forget that protestants can't be catholic same reason that people forget that jesus was a practicing jew so Wait, just really? Complicates things. <laughs> it makes things really awkward to explain it to people. Changes everything. He read the Bible. He had issues with things that were going on within the the church. He had major issues with indulgences. He had issues with some of the the traditions that existed, such as the church's fascination with the Virgin Mary, for example. Who if you actually read the Bible, does not play nearly as big a part as the church tends to. No, not really. Like emphasize. That's maybe like another another episode in the making is like, where did that spawn out of? But it's yeah. I, I, I mean, we could talk about that all day, but we're trying to focus on yeah, the, yeah. the 16th century. Here. So so Martin, Martin over here. In 1517, Pope Leo X asked for indulgences to help rebuild St. Peter's Basilica. And Luther went, okay, okay, here's, here's the problem with this. He got real mad and he wrote this document called the 95 Theses, which was mainly attacking the selling of indulgences. It also touched on the concept of purgatory, whether or not that actually existed. And it touched on briefly the authority of the Pope to dictate catechism. So religious law. Sounds like witchery to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people had problems with it. Uh, it was submitted to the Catholic Church. It was submitted to the Vatican for review and for rebuttal. So the Catholic Church took it seriously enough to be like, okay, well, we should write a thing coming out in in in, uh, in opposition to this to defend ourselves, to defend our practices. And they they took their time. By the way, I should I should mention it's it's All Saints Church in uh, in Wittenberg that this happened. 
I, I feel like certain aspects of the story get left out a lot, like where this actually happened. It's it's Germany. a beautiful church. Like if anybody ever has the chance to go to the church, I would it's love amazing. to see it at some point. And cool, cool side note. So what they do every year mm-hmm. is they actually have a 16th century period themed festival where like the whole town dress up like they're 16th century. Does some guy get to play Martin Luther and nail yeah. something? Yeah. Yeah. And That's he goes awesome. up and he pretends to nail the theses to the door. And the town gives away free mead to everybody. Awesome. That's the other thing about Luther. He loved to drink. Yeah. He was a partier. Oh, yeah. And there's, like, all sorts of, like, weird stories that they like to perpetuate. Like, I'm sure most of them are false. But oh, like, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Like, lots of weird stuff. I don't... Anyways. 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 Luther was smarter than a lot of the people that he saw go before him. Like, like Jan Hus or John mm-hmm. Wycliffe. In that he realized that he couldn't go this alone. And so he spoke to the Prince of Saxony, uh, Prince Frederick, and basically said, like, listen, the church is going to take a while, but they're going to come after me. I'm just trying to... Because this is the other thing I think people forget about. He wasn't trying to start his own religion when this all started. No, I think it's just people had a really sympathetic ear for it. He wasn't trying to start a new religion. He was trying to reform the current one. He said, like, the the theses aren't, let's abandon the Catholic Church. The theses were, listen, guys, we've strayed. We need to get back on on track. We need to get back to a place where we're righteous. We need to get back to a place where priests aren't going around and taking payment in exchange for absolution that doesn't even exist. Because the official line of the Catholic Church at that point in time was that you can't shorten a, per- a soul's stay in purgatory. You can't take confession for another person who has died. That's not true. You can't do it. And yet there were these priests going around taking money for it. And it's important to remember, like, yeah, this wasn't party line. So it's not as though the, the church was saying, like, yep, bring in the cash. But they weren't doing a lot to suppress it either. And they did know about it. Everyone knew this was happening. Mm-hmm. And so basically Martin Luther was saying, guys, we need to, like, can we address this? Like, can we do something about this? And that, like, proclamation that they wanted that money to help fund official church business was kind of, like, the final straw for him? Absolutely. And I, the, 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 the indulgences that the Pope was offering weren't, like, they, they were true indulgences. And I, I, I use scare quotes on that. But it wasn't for sins that had not happened yet. And it was not for the sins of other people who had passed away. Uh, it was indulgences as were legal under church law at that point in time and you know when you kind of break it down seem a little bit less terrible than what some of these traveling priests but it would still be perpetuating it wasn't helping things that's for sure absolutely not and so that that's really the the final straw so he went to frederick the third and said can can you help me out here and frederick the third was a pretty smart guy number one said i like the sound of what you're saying like, this, this interests me. Number two said, this could be the avenue that I'm looking for in terms of finding my own independent power from the Holy Roman, Emperor, uh, the Holy Roman Empire. Because if, you know, either this is going to change the, the course of the church, um, which is something that I want, and so win for me, or it's going to create a huge rift. 
if it creates a rift, I can join the side of the rift that is not with the Catholic Church, and it can help me step back from the emperor a little bit. Again, huge win for me. So either way, Frederick III is happy. Provides like political cover for him to... As well as spiritual cover. I mean, let's 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 not make him out to be more callous than he is. Yeah, yeah. You know, he, he truly believed in what Luther had to say. Okay. This is something that Jan Hus and that John Wycliffe had never had, which was an actual uh, powerful person with an army that was on their side. Over the next three years, the church went over. The 95 Theses wrote their rebuttal very carefully. The church moves incredibly slowly on stuff like this. And over that time, Luther kept writing. And most importantly, Frederick III printed his writings. He printed them and he disseminated them throughout Germany in German. And that's the most important part because the church, when they came back with their rebuttal, that was going to be in Latin because that's how the church writes. Even to this day, papal bulls, official papal bulls are written in Latin first and then translated into every other language. It is the official language of the Roman Catholic Church. Hmm. At that point in time, they wouldn't even bother translating. Luther was writing these things in German for Germans. Luther also advocated for a German Bible. Some of the stuff that he was writing on at this point in time was, for example, Sola Scriptura, devotion to the saints and Mary, or, you know, how we've maybe got out of hand with that a little bit. Uh, he wrote about uh, the idea of grace versus works, which is a major uh, uh, point of differentiation between Protestant denominations and the catholic church basically they differ on how how a soul is saved the short version of it is that protestant de uh, denominations will tell you that you are saved by the grace of god alone god saves you whether you want to be saved or not mm -hmm. and it's up to you to recognize that it's that salvation that grace that holy grace um, and if you are fully receptive to it and if you fully embrace it in your life then you're then everything about your life will inform that grace and, and, and you'll, you'll lead a better life because you're filled by the grace of God. The Catholics would tell you that it is through uh, works of charity and works of devotion. So not, not just, you know, doing good things, but also prayer, uh, meditation, reflection. It is, it, it's through those things that you prepare yourself to receive the grace of God and that the individual has to be open to the grace of God in or, order to mm -hmm. receive it. So the, the difference here is Protestants are saying God is giving it out whether you want it or not. Catholics are saying uh, God is giving it out, but you have to be willing to receive it. You have to make yourself ready to receive it or else mm -hmm. you're not going to get it. Um, and then Protestants are saying you've been given it, but you can lose it by not using it properly. Okay. It's really confusing and it kind of feels like it's two sides of the same coin. And that's because usually they're using the same verses to justify their particular interpretation of that mode of salvation. One of the really interesting things I read about Sola Scriptura when I was looking into that, this is that if you truly believe in Sola Scriptura, which is that the only things that matter, the only things that are true are in the Bible, then Sola Scriptura is a tautology because the Bible does not say that the Bible is the only source of true knowledge. You can't find backup for it in the Bible and therefore it's indefensible. Now, no one in a Protestant denomination is going to cop to that because that's not how these things work. I yeah. just thought that was a, an interesting point about it. Papacy finally responds in 1520 
and asks him to recant 40, uh, 41 of his statements, both from the 95 Theses and from other, uh, others of his works. He refuses. And the church goes, oh, okay, well, I guess we have to excommunicate you then? And he goes, okay, fine. I don't, think you, I don't believe you have the moral authority to do that. I think that this is between me and God. And the church didn't know what to do with them. Shots fired. I mean, this is this is the point where, you know, with Jan Hus, the church would say, okay, well, come and we're going to talk this over. And, you know, we're going to have a, we're going to have a, uh, a convention about this. We're going to discuss it. And we guarantee you uh, safety of, of transit. And he goes, okay, well, I'll come. And then he gets there and they arrest him and burn him at the stake for being a heretic. So they invite uh, Luther to explain himself. And he goes, uh... I know all about Jan Hus, you guys. The printing press has been invented. I read stuff. I know my history. And they went, shoot, that, that trick doesn't work anymore. The other thing is they can't write Luther off as the traditional form of heretic. Because he's already like a popularized figure. Because of the dissemination of his works through the printing press. They can't say to everybody that like, you know... Part of what Luther is trying to get people to do is, you know, uh, put a crucifix on the ground and spit on it three times because you can see what Luther wants. In fact, you can understand what Luther wants better than probably you understand what the Catholic Church wants. Isn't it so interesting, though, that this this seems to be like one of the first times where like media messaging really comes into like anything absolutely like and, that that's just fascinating and used incredibly effectively very effectively and so frederick the third guarantees safe passage um for luther like he'll send guards with him he will make sure that he gets to and from anywhere that he needs to go luther says i don't want this at the vatican i'm not willing to be i i don't i don't recognize your authority and so the pope goes to the holy roman emperor and says we need to do something about this and they summon Luther under, under state law to a convention known as the Diet of Worms. And it's spelt like Diet of Worms, which is really confusing when you read it. <laughs> um, but a Diet is, a, is a, a, a parliamentary convention. And Worms was just a, a, a town uh, that this was being held at. It was, there, there was a big which hall Which plays there. a fairly central role in like a lot of crazy things that happen afterwards. Worms was kind of like the hag of the holy roman empire in some way like it was in in some ways like it wasn't important enough to be like a major player politically but it was it was also big enough that it could easily host all of these other players and so it all, all uh, it often ended up being sort of a, a immediate ground um where where they could discuss these issues without anyone having too much of an upper hand and without them having too much of a stake in it. Yeah. So, but yeah, absolutely. There were a lot of really important conventions held here. So he was summoned and he was basically asked, do you stand by these statements? And he was given like, think this over. Like, are you, are you really willing to stand by this? Are you willing to deny the church? Because excommunication is kind of a funny thing. It's not really kicking people out so much as it is excluding them from church life in an attempt to try and get them to realize that what they're doing is wrong which i know is a subtle distinction but it's meant to be an act of 
it's supposed to be a loving act. It's supposed to be an act of, of punishment in the way that you put a kid in the corner. Yeah, like not in get the your way life you, together sort of thing. Not in the way that you kick your 18-year-old out and never talk to him again. Yeah. Like it's, 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 that's kind of the distinction that the church sees it as. But they're kind of going like, okay, yeah, we've excommunicated you. Are you willing to live the rest of your life in a, a, a state of, of excommunication? Which means, by the way, that he can't receive any of the sacraments which means that he can't receive the Eucharist, which is the most holy sacrament in the Catholic Church, because you are, again, receiving literally the body and blood of Christ, which is one of the most important commandments to the Catholics that is given by Christ in the Bible. It's a big deal. It's a really big deal. And Luther thought it over, and his response was, I stand by every statement that I made unless it can be shown to me in the Bible where what I said is wrong. Which is an interesting response. Because mm-hmm. he's challenging them on his terms. Absolutely he is. And what, what's more, he feels confident enough in his position that it's defensible through scripture that, that, he, can, that, that he can rest easy knowing yeah. that the church isn't going to come back and say, actually, on point number 23, if you look up Psalms 2, verses, you know, chapter 1, verse 27, that's where you're wrong. Mm-hmm. He knows the Bible inside and out. He's an incredibly well-read man. He's an incredibly intelligent man. He is certain that, I just challenged him on, that there is no way they can back it up through Scripture. And so they said, well okay, the, the excommunication stands, and they decide to arrest him. Uh, they, they let him go, but they decide that they're going to arrest him once he gets back to, to Saxony. He's going to be put under arrest when he's there. This is the craziest part, which is that Frederick III arranges for him to be kidnapped from the train back to the castle by guys that are dressed up like highwaymen. So they make it look like a hijacking. And they bundle Martin Luther up and they take him away to a different castle where he's like hidden away from the church and he's hidden away from the emperor. Because they were they were certain they were taking him to kill him. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there's probably there's there's very little doubt there. Yeah. Unbelievable, man. So so what's uh, what does he get out of this? Like Luther? No, um. Frederick the Third. Yeah, like what? Uh... Well, this is what we discussed before. He's he's okay with uh, he's okay with reform in the church, or he'd be okay with a split from but the church that gives him further political. He's power. definitely at this point like got a sizable enough army. Like you had mentioned that the uh, Roman Holy Empire was kind of like a, a mishmash, and you know the top leadership, like the emperor, was really not as strong as he liked to portray that he was. Not necessarily, but his strength came from raising armies from all of his constituent states. So that's kind of so at this point, really, he's just okay. He sees that this guy is, you know, likely going to be very useful to him. Yep. But you know, not being completely cynical, he also like has legitimate reasons for believing him and like. I should maybe what clarify: This is Frederick the Third that is kidnapping him, not the emperor. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah, so at this point, he's just kind of stashing him away for... Frederick III is already in too deep. He already harbored him while he wrote all of these things for three years and helped him disseminate it. Okay, so now it's kind of like, you're, you're in for better or for worse, he's so you might as well... I mean, if it, yeah. if it fails, his state is going to be split up among 
four other principalities and it will disappear off the face of the map and no one will ever know that it, ex- it existed. Okay. But if he wins, he's got a lot to win. Like he's got a lot. Uh, yeah, there, there's, there's a lot that he can gain out of this. Um, mostly any sort of authority to split away uh, or, or gain any independence whatsoever from the emperor. Mm-hmm. Um, so puts him up at Warburg Castle um, and Luther continues writing. Uh, during this time, he finishes his German translation of the Bible um, his first version came out in 1522 and they start again spreading it out because they wanted people to read the Bible. They wanted people to know what it was that they were reading. We talked earlier about this idea of uh, Pentecost and the, the priestly order being divinely inspired by the, the, the Holy Spirit and being given the ability to correctly interpret the word of God. Luther's reading of that is that the apostles represent all Christians and that through both baptism and through the, the grace of God, which, like as we talked about earlier, is bestowed on everyone, anyone has the capacity to, anyone that is, is reasonably intelligent, that was in there, he, yeah. he did say reasonably intelligent, anyone that's reasonably intelligent is able to correctly interpret the Bible. And what's more, because the words of the Bible were divinely inspired by the authors, according to him, the Holy Spirit is inherent in the words themselves. And even if a person isn't in a state of perfect grace, by reading the Bible, the words themselves will help the person to interpret them as God intended them to. So he's putting a lot of pressure on that book. Shoot. And he's putting a lot of pressure on individuals. Yeah to take advantage of or, or to take an interest in their own spiritual life, which is a really difficult thing to do. Yeah. I, I guess, you know, up until this point, sure. It, it's always had a personal component, but now it seems to me like never like before, not, it, not the way that it does now, because what we're looking at here is the rise of humanism and humanism is a movement that kind of predates the, the Renaissance to some extent, but Humanism is the idea that you as an individual have agency. Yeah. And that's a new idea. Because before you were just, I mean, talking about the, the church in terms of a shepherd and his flock was a little less allegorical than it is today. Yeah. They saw it very much as sort of uh, a bulk of souls that don't necessarily have much of a will behind them that need intense supervision and guidance. Luther is saying, like, no, people on their own have the ability to interpret this and to act on it appropriately. And not only do they have the ability, but they also have the responsibility, which are big ideas. Yeah. The church has been going through a lot of stuff at this point. I mean, not only are there all these uh, heresies, they also just found out about the new world, which throws a big wrench in their whole worldview. There are issues of like what the people living there, like who are they even? How did they get there? Because church, this is another thing, church tradition doesn't allow for anybody outside of Africa, Asia, and Europe. Yeah. Those, according to church tradition, are descended from the three sons of Noah. So where do Native Americans come from? How did they get there if everyone came from Europe after the flood? Or, or, sorry, Asia, actually. Well, uh, it, it, it's a problem. And, and what that does is, is shine a light on the fact that tradition is fallible. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, it's one of many, many, many things, but I think it's a really interesting example of the kind of thing that the church was facing in terms of challenges to its uh, authority as, as, a, as an absolute authority. It didn't know how to deal with it. It's, it's funny, but like in my mind, all I can think of is the Book of Mormon. It's like the ancient Jews that sailed to America. Yeah, the Book of Mormon is an interesting one, too, because they do try and address that. But the only reason that the Book of Mormon tries to address that is that it was written in the 19th century when we knew about the New World and already knew for several hundred years about this problem of where exactly the Native Americans came from. Yeah, it's it's just such a such an interesting... That's another topic. Man. Oh, yeah. We, we, hey, you want to do Mormonism sometime? You should come back and do Mormonism with oh, me. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, that's... It's it's the telling of the tale of America in a whole new light. It's <laughs> let's put it on the schedule. Yeah, let's let's do, it let's do it. Like it's it's such an interesting, fascinating topic. I'm absolutely down. Anyways, so Martin Luther. Martin Luther. He's finished up his translation of the Bible. Uh, Fifteen twenty five. He gets married. Another big departure from t- tradition because it doesn't say anywhere in the Bible that priests can't marry. That is part of church tradition. In fact, he marries a former nun. Which is oh oh man! If you had any doubt that this dude was the devil before, watch out, ladies. Yeah, he he seduced a uh, a a former nun named uh, Katharina von Bora, who he helped a dozen nuns escape from a convent. Personally, helped them escape from a convent. That may not be true. Personally, helped them (laughs) escape from a convent when they were interested in Lutheran ideals and they were being punished for their interest in 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 what he had to say he helped a dozen of them escape and one of them just fell head over heels for him man what a guy what a guy but it's interesting like again making really strong statements like he obviously stood really firm like he, he was very convinced of his own beliefs which is really important for someone like this and kind of goes without saying but he demonstrates it through his life like through through the way he lived his life again and again in 1526, he finished the German Mass. This was meant to be not necessarily a replacement for the Latin Mass, but it was supposed to be a way for people to well, to celebrate Mass in a way that they could understand On it. their own terms, yeah. Yeah, and so there was, uh, he, he finished both a, a large catechism and a small catechism in uh, three years later in 1529, and these were basically responses to the Catholic catechism, which I keep saying catechism. It's basically tradition written down in a book it is Mm -hmm. you go through chapter by chapter and it talks about things like transubstantiation which isn't in the bible or it talks about uh the role of celibacy in the priesthood or it talks about uh the role of the saints it talks about you know uh the the existence of purgatory you know all of these things that aren't actually in the bible he writes a response to all of these things um he writes both a, a a large catechism which is for ministers and a small catechism which is sort of a summary that's supposed to be for everybody mm-hmm. so now what he's doing is is not only writing it in the vernacular but trying to put it in everyone's hands so they're not just hearing about this for a couple of hours every sunday they can actually sit at home and read it if they have the ability to read anything at all if they are even in any way literate they can now be active participants in their own worship and you you got to think at this time what a social change that must have been now all of a sudden there's a reason for regular people to learn how to read yeah like that must have just changed 
so much in terms of like education. Yeah, well, not as not only is there a motivation, but there's also material available. Yeah, it's both of those things happening at the same time, and they're kind of inextricable. Yeah, like the content is available, and and you know, it's kind of a chicken and egg sort of thing. And yeah, absolutely, somebody has produced an egg, and that just you know, yeah, it's it's amazing, it's amazing, and so you're you're seeing. I mean, at this point, the church would tell you that there's nothing really wrong here. There's just this uppity Luther guy who's causing all these problems, and we'll figure out how to how to figure you know we'll figure out how to solve this sooner or later. Yeah. And the people will come back to us. We're the true church. It'll be fine. While in reality, throughout Germany, there's this underground—not well, really underground—but as far as the church is considered, and as far as the emperor is considered, an underground movement of people who are challenging the beliefs of the church, who are questioning their own beliefs about the Bible and interpretations of the Bible for the first time in thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Because this is the first time they've had any, any, uh, any option to question these things. This is the first time they've had access to the source material in order to wonder if maybe the interpretation they're, be- they, they're being given by their priest each Sunday isn't the best way to look at something. And yeah. it's not necessarily to say that you know, there, there's there's a, an inherent um, superiority to the Protestant way of looking at things at this point in time. But the point of it is is the is the option that people have all of a sudden. And I mean, on certain on certain moral grounds like indulgences, they absolutely have a point when they're saying. Oh, that the, I'm sure the a lot of these things authority. were also like incredibly popular with the masses. It's, well, because all of a sudden you've the... got somebody coming around saying you don't need to pay. Yeah. Well, you, you've also got, you know, the corrupt, uh, you know, village priest who's trying to take bribes on all of this stuff or is teaching his own version of things, but, mm-hmm. you know, is, is using it to his own advantage in some way that people know isn't quite right, but he's the only game in town. Wow, that must have been so awkward. Well, what are you going to do? Risk eternal uh, oh, damnation? Yeah. The over... stakes are too high. Yeah, way too high. This is giving people an option to actually really consider faith on their own terms. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them decided that they liked what Luther had to say. And before he knew it, Luther was kind of setting up a church. He was kind of setting up a church. And he never thought he would be there, but he absolutely was. We'll get a little bit more into how things progress. But the biggest thing that I want to comment on at this point is, man, did he open up a Pandora's box. Oh, yeah. Because as soon as there's one alternative to the, to the, to the church... There are going to be so many more alternatives, and he can't do anything to get those back. It is, it has been released. It is never coming back in. And this is something that, uh, throughout history, a lot of people like. This is one of the biggest criticisms that a lot of people had about Martin Luther is for a guy who ended up, you know, causing this huge split. And even, you know, even though it was unintentional, ended up forming a church. Yeah. He was not pleased at all about other people going up and doing their own thing. Yeah. To the point where, you know, he advocated for a lot of of a lot of exactly what, you know, the Catholic Church was, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of the things that he didn't like in the Catholic Church, he later went on to do the exact same thing. Absolutely. Against a lot of these new startups. Yep. So I think that's probably a good place to stop uh, for now. Um, But uh, when we come back, we're going to look at some of those other movements that started out of this very quickly after Luther made his split um, and uh, kind of go from there. So we'll take a break. All right. 
Though the Catholic Church may not have realized yet that they no longer had a monopoly on Christianity in Europe, that's exactly what had happened. And in ending that monopoly, Luther both ended their absolute moral authority over all of Europe and created the conditions for other competing ventures. It took less than two years after the 95 Theses were posted for other strong and lasting movements to be created. Next time on HM101, we'll explore these more varied and extreme responses to the Catholic Church, as well as follow the political ramifications of the Reformation. That episode will be up on November 15th. As the format of this show inevitably leads to factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections posted there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, I encourage you to look for more information. It only gets better from here. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.